Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axton, and I want to continue the series that we've been doing on philosophers. And today in this podcast, talk about Martin Heidegger. Heidegger, of course, is a very controversial figure at this point because of his engagement with National Socialism. And one hesitates to say this up front because you think, well, people will lose interest in in him when you realize the depth of insipid stupidity attached to Heidegger's thought. But maybe uh, if you've spent time with Heidegger, and maybe it even makes it more disappointing, disappointing. I suppose my first experience with Heidegger was quite exciting, you know, thinking here of uh, Joshua Rothman's depiction in the New Yorker article some five years ago. He describes it as one of the best intellectual experiences of his life is really through reading Heidegger that he's had one of the most profound of intellectual experiences. Certainly Heidegger is breaking new ground. He's bringing together a lot of thought, synthesizing then continental thought, especially the thought of Hegel and of phenomenology. Rothman describes his experience, he says it was as if he was trapped on the ground floor of a building, and Heidegger then offered him an express elevator to the roof where you could see the stars. And that's sort of the experience that many people have had, that he describes an understanding that encompasses religion and science and a kind of new way of describing human existence through the experience of what it means to be human. And of course the idea here of being and especially the notion that it's humans who raise this question and that they're interested in interpreting or understanding and just the raising the question itself, that it's human beings that are the ones who care about what it means to be human. The word care here is going to be a key part of his philosophical understanding, that we develop an understanding of things that we care about. Like many, I when I began to read Heidegger, I wasn't really aware of his Nazi connection. You, you just think of smart people, that they don't do stupid things, which is, of course, already a, a naive understanding. It may be that here is one of the most profound philosophical thinkers of the 20th century, uh, who turns out, as one of his followers have said, to be a despicable idiot. I don't know that the two things are counterpoised, that is, that the greatest metaphysician and the despicable idiot. I don't think that we can separate out those two understandings, and this is my approach, is that the idiocy or the banality or the stupidity, the evil of his thought and the depth of his thought, I think we need to look at together. That if we try to separate it out, and maybe that's the ways that, you know, you can think of basically three ways of reading Heidegger, that, oh, you just say like with Hannah Arendt did, that Hannah Arendt, of course, would had a kind of strange uh, relationship. She was his student, uh, also had a long affair with Heidegger, and seemed to be quite forgiving of his Nazism, describing it as a kind of momentary lapse and was willing to forgive him, which, of course, doesn't seem to get at the nature of his failure. 
So, but that would be one way. Another way would be to dis dismiss him and say, well, he's just stupid and it's time to move on and not even include him in the uh, corpus of accepted philosophical thinkers. But I think he's, he's interesting and his Nazism then is part of the interest that we have to look at the Nazism as part of his thought. Of course, it's in 1987 when Victor Farias, a Chilean professor, really he brings together things that are not new, but in his book on Heidegger and Nazism. The book got a lot of press and uh, raised the issue for a lot of people that Heidegger was not just one who had engaged in Nazism for pragmatic reasons, but was an enthusiastic Nazi. And this then, his work has generated a whole host of books. And of course, as the notebooks, Heidegger's notebooks, they're just so voluminous as they begin to be published that there is an awareness of the depth of the his engagement and enthusiasm for Adolf Hitler. As he predicted in May 1933, ironically, he says, the spiritual strength of the West fails, its structure crumbles, this morbid semblance of a culture caves in and drags all powers into confusion, suffocating them in madness. Whether or not this will happen depends on one thing, whether we Germans as a historical spiritual people will ourselves again. In this there's the elements of Friedrich Nietzsche and of course the, the sad part of this is that Martin Heidegger is a part of the great destruction that is represented by Nazism. He had joined the Nazi party in 1933. Some say it went along with his position as the Fuhrer Rector, the president of Freiburg University. But he was an enthusiastic Nazi from the beginning. I remember reading one account when he was watching Hitler that the friend that he was with said, well, you know, that Hitler is this kind of a peasant, stupid. But Heidegger said, well, look at his hands. Look how beautiful his hands are. Look at Heidegger's Hitler mustache. He told his students in 1933, let not theories and ideas be the rules of your being. The Fuhrer himself, and he alone, is German reality and its law, today and for the future. And he would continue to speak about the inner truth and greatness of National Socialism. And really, for all of his life, he never became convinced that a liberal democratic system was the preferred way to go. In fact, he never will repent of his association with Nazism and National Socialism. What the notebooks begin to bring out is that the most banal and ignorant anti-Semitic beliefs are expressed by Heidegger, uh, that he talks about the conspiracy of the calculating Jews, that they're unfurling their influence. He also tried to speak about it in his own philosophical way. He says that it's the Jews that are uprooting us from the being in the world. Passages, just uh, not one or two, but over and over again have so alarmed and disgusted Heideggerians who, or people who have followed Heidegger because they show that Heidegger and his philosophy then, as one begins to look at it, you realize it's a system then that seems to reflect his failure of thought. That is that 
like any good system of thought, it's not that just one part of the system fails, but rather that the failure is, is inherent to the, the system itself. As Peter Trani, who's the head of the Heidegger Institute in Germany, and it's again one of those who are the closest followers of Heidegger, Trani describes his great disappointment in reading through the notebooks and just encountering again and again what he will eventually call a Heidegger stupidity. Which, talking this way, he says, you know, I'd really like to keep my job as the uh, head of the Heidegger Institute. This just has to come out in the open. And so I think it's true. I think Trani is right that the whole thing is contaminated. The whole system is contaminated. But what I would claim is the contamination itself is sort of interesting. That, yes, it can be very painful, but as, as Trani describes it, as one reads him, there is the necessity of dismissing his thought as some sort of end in itself, but recognizing that he's uncovering things that are nonetheless true. In this, I'm thinking here, you know, if you take a, a character like Slavoj Žižek, who I think is a, a very significant thinker, but if you would take away the self-reflection, take away the humor, take away Zizek's own understanding that he's delving into things that are in fact evil, that he will talk about jouissance as a kind of evil. And so Zizek's very aware of the play of evil in this sort of thought. So if you would take Zizek and take all of that self-reflection, self-awareness, that humor, in a sense, that boils down to something like what you have in Heidegger. They're both, of course, I think Zizek's a much more interesting thinker. Nonetheless, I think that their engagement with Hegel is, is similar in this way, that the vocabulary is going to sound very, very uh, similar. Um, his best-known book, Being in Time, again, just reading this book, especially there's, there's different takes on the book. It seems that he wrote much of it in a kind of hurried fashion. Some would say that the first half is readable and is making sense, but the second half is just a compilation that in fact no, has no coherent thought to it. And so there's really no aspect of Heidegger that's not controversial. One of the main claims of Heidegger is that Western philosophy since Plato has misunderstood what it means for something to be. And he says that to approach this question in terms simply of a being, rather than asking about being itself, is the primary philosophical mistake of the Western tradition. That all investigations of being have focused on particular entities and their properties, and they've treated being itself like it is a property like any other property as having substance you know that you can examine it in the same way and so his point is the examination of being apart from individual things that are is the new departure this sounds all quite vague but what you get in this is that there is always a kind of division in western philosophical thought that's already overcome, you know, in somebody like Edmund Husserl. All philosophy, Husserl said, and Husserl, of course, is Heidegger's teacher, is to look at the description of experience that, to the things themselves. But for Heidegger, this meant something, understanding that experience is always situated in a world and in ways of being. And thus he takes Husserl's understanding 
that all consciousness is intentional, that it is towards something, it's always about something, and he transforms it into the idea that all experience is grounded in this care. So he wants to turn intention or care to the thought of being or to an examination of the human being. To describe experience, he thinks, properly means finding the being for whom such a description might matter. That is, that hermeneutics is a, a turn to the one doing the interpretation, the being for whom being is a question. And so common sense, he thinks, is mistaken in regard to being. And this mistake filters into terms through which being is articulated, you know, reality, logic, God, consciousness. Heidegger argues that this affects the way in which human beings relate to the world, and especially in his later critique of modern technology, that is, that the world will become a kind of instrumental sort of knowledge. But what we need is a, a thought that is world-disclosing how things become intelligible, how they make sense to human beings, by virtue of being part of an ontological world. And what he means by this is the world is already interpreted. It's already structured. There's a holistically structured background of meaning. And the claim is that this understanding is first disclosed to us through our practical relationships with things and other people and through language. His is also a turn. He will later kind of disparage the examination of language itself, but he's going to talk a lot about dwelling in the house of language. I think one of the key ideas that there's an overcoming of a theory of, a, of detached understanding of everything and replacing it with an engaged hermeneutic of being in the world. And maybe if, uh, from a Christian perspective, this is a quite biblical move. That is, that theology was captured by the same sort of dualism as philosophy, which maybe led to one of the major failures of theological thought and overlooking a major theme of the Bible, that is, an examination in depth of the human condition. And so I might say that Heidegger, you know, my own work in uh, dealing with Romans 7, I would trace it back then to reading Heidegger's Being in Time. And what he does then, one of the key things, that we usually are working with soul, spirit, mind, body, subject, object, those sorts of dualism, that I would say just characterize human thought, and he's going to use, he's going to actually use fallenness or thrownness. He's going to pick up a lot of biblical language, and of course he himself is trained as a theologian, or at least in a Jesuit philosophical tradition. We could say these same sorts of dualisms that have captured philosophy have also captured theology, and instead of emphasizing a holistic salvation that we dwelt upon, or theology has dwelt upon, the soulish, or the cognitive, or the propositional. And so Heidegger, I think, has filled in the silence by taking up and secularizing what is, in fact, I would claim, the biblical theme. But maybe we could say this is a part of a tradition in Western thought that we see unfolding through Hegel and Freud and an un unfolding of really the 
human situation, the existential human situation. The basic insight is that a first philosophy or ontology cannot begin with a dualism of a self-contained subject having mental content and an independent object. In other words, an inside and an outside. And so the initial purpose of his questioning of being is to locate it as the background to being human. It is at once the most universal and the most obscure of concepts because he says it's prior to logic, it's prior to thought. And so we can question being because that's what we live and move in. It's at once everywhere and a problem to question because we have to learn to address ourselves to that which is obscured because it's so pervasive. It's right in front of our face, he says, and yet can't, we can't get at it. And so maybe this describes Heidegger's original description of a hermeneutic circle. Think here of one of his premier students, Hans George Gadamer, is going to take up Heidegger and apply him then to hermeneutics and his move. Later, he, he will move to abandon describing it precisely because it is a circle. Graham Ward describes that when a Japanese inquirer asked him, how would you present the hermeneutic circle today? He can only answer, I would avoid a presentation as resolutely as I would avoid speaking about language. So there are places that he may in fact seek to describe this, but realizes that we dwell in this thing. So to refer to God at this point as the supreme being, to turn to theology, will be to miss the basic thrust of the work which is to get at the basis of at which beings are to be understood, or that being is already understood. So to raise the question means the answer. If you can ask the question, the answer is in the grasp of the questioner. Thus, to work out the question of being means to make a being one who questions transparent in its being, he says, in being and time. The point is to find Dasein, and Dasein is just being there, being in the situation, Dasein's way of being. It is an examination of a self-interpreting being who he calls existence. Only self-interpreting beings exist in this sense, he says. So Dasein, or being in the world, cannot be understood in terms of subject-object terms or in any cognitivism or formalism. The mind cannot be duplicated artificially because it is, in fact, itself not a formal construct. It is not artificial. It's a way of being in the world. This sounds, again, abstract, but think of artificial, the work in artificial intelligence. The presumption is that intelligence itself must be a formal artificial construct in order to duplicate it. For Heidegger, the Platonic move to theorize or find in the forms, which is synonymous with making being cognizable, he says this is an explanation for everything which reduces the human situation to a network of intentional states or a tacit belief system which can be gotten at through a detached objectivity boiled down to theory and free of everyday practicality. That is, you're going to move, you're going to separate out the theory from the practice, the 
forms from the world content. And so Heidegger turns to everyday being in the world, to those things so close that we miss them. One of his famous meditations is upon a a vase, upon a, a flower vase. So we look at these things in order to manifest the human situation and so be able to, in that way, modify that situation. Again, we might pause and ask, isn't this in part a kind of theological or biblical enterprise to delineate the human condition? Isn't part of what it means, what salvation must mean, to describe the human predicament and to alter that predicament? Isn't revelation, it's not concerned with revealing to us the mind of God so much as deconstructing the delusion uh, at the center at the heart of what it means to be human and de- deconstructed in order to remake human beings. And so this means a turn to preconceptual practices to uncover the foundation of interpretation, the unconscious, if you will, or what we are at least unconscious of and need to be made aware of. And this foundation does not consist of rules or concepts or the study of a conscious subject but of preconceptual conditions. Being there is more all-inclusive and basic than consciousness. You know, this, again, to, to make this practical, I think a thing that Heidegger might approve of is just looking at the way of, for example, the way that children are reared and the way that they learn language and their dependence upon the world, that we can look at very practical things and understand how consciousness then, the abstraction may be a distraction, but I think it can, uh, that he's talking about things that we can actually say, well, yeah, we are all here, and we all have a perception, you know, this is, it's Heidegger that it's going to give us the practical focus on worldview, on gestalt theory, upon notions of, of studying the human situation. So the sign displays an ontology that no one has in mind. Dasein practices already display an interpretation of the world. So what we have to get at is not more interpretation, but the keys to that, or the foundation of that interpretive understanding. This interpretation, he says, is not based on belief, rules, or principle, but it's the skill and the practice that is important. And so the social activity of Dasein is a display of this self-interpreting activity, which is its existence. You know, think here of his famous reflection on what a hammer is. And of course, you don't know what a hammer is until you see someone hammering with a hammer. It's its use. It's the practical activity. What's also basic is the misinterpreting that Dasein does, which is to assume that there is some essential nature to things. The sign has no nature beyond the self-interpreting activity. That is, once you've got to the interpretation, this is what human beings are in their essence, according to Heidegger. This activity is one that generates essence or ground, or a seeming essence, to cover over the fact that, in fact, Dasein is interpretation all the way down. It is the self-reflection reflecting upon itself. Dasein's pre-ontological understanding is, in fact, a misunderstanding 
that is aimed at covering anxiety and unsettledness. And of course, this resonates in many directions, certainly with uh, Hegel, but also just with a Freudian psychoanalysis with uh, Jacques Lacan. And of course, Lacan was a great admirer of Heidegger's. Lacan kept writing to Heidegger and trying to set up a friendship or correspondence. And Heidegger said, well, I think the psychoanalyst is in need of a psychoanalyst. But in fact, when Heidegger came to Paris, it was Lacan who picked him up at the airport and drove him around Paris and frightened Heidegger and his wife so badly that they swore they'd never ride in a car with him again. But at any rate, there is a connection that is is made here, that Lacan is clearly using Heidegger. Heidegger is probably not aware or not deeply aware of Jacques Lacan, but will be aware of Freud and, of course, of, of Hegel. And so the idea of the unconscious, of anxiety, uh, I think is all key here. He says this fleeing, motivated understanding produces falling, and this fallenness is an essential structure of human being. And I don't think we should back off from realizing, yeah, he's developing a theological notion here, that people are fallen into the world. There's a misunderstanding, and this misunderstood creation of essence, that is, if you think of it as a kind of reifying of the world, it is always takes the same characteristic. It's my or mine, which is part of the cover-up. Think here of the Cartesian I, you know, the I, the mine. The grounding in the self is part of the fallenness. And this mindness is a way of being. It is the public stand. It's a way of comporting yourself. It may be what is picked up from the collective way of not owning up to itself. Maybe it attaches itself to some role in society. Ironically, you know, as you read Heidegger, you think, well, where some people are better than their thought, Heidegger doesn't live up to his own thought. He is so eager to be the president of a university. He's so eager to take an, a place of importance in German society. Dasein achieves individuality, he says, through understanding its groundlessness. And groundlessness here, just think nothing. Think of Hegel's nothingness. An essay that I think is key to understanding Heidegger is his essay on metaphysics, which he's going to talk about, this nothing or this groundlessness. To choose itself in this way, that is to understand the groundlessness, is the way to own up to the self. And of course what Heidegger is doing is trying to pass through what he sees as the nihilism of Western thought. The nihilism that he does long studies of Friedrich Nietzsche is very aware of Hegel, is very aware of uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And so it is the stream of thought in which there is an engagement with nihilism. The question is whether he overcomes this nihilism or if, in fact, his Nazism, his National Socialism, is a kind of evidence that he is just displaying more nihilistic thought. You could take his thought and break it down into three key steps. He says, Dasein is trying to make sense of a being of which it has some premonition. Number two, Dasein is made up of the attempt to understand itself. And three, understanding Dasein's being implies an understanding of all being. 
that is self-interpretation and interpretation of the human situation will open up the world of being. Heidegger's method, we might say it is a phenomenology, but it's phenomena which shows itself in itself. The being of beings is what shows itself phenomenologically. That which determines beings as beings, that on the basis of which beings are already understood. And so he says, ontology is possible only as phenomenology. He says, we assert that nothing, the nothing, is more original than the not and negation. And here I'm turning to his what is metaphysics. To me, this is a, a key article, or it's a short way, it's a short introduction, I think, to getting an insight into Heidegger's thought. The nothing is beyond beings, almost what some of the Neoplatonists in at least John McQuarrie's depiction for Heidegger, nothing is sort of what the Platonists call hyperousia. Holding itself out into the nothing, Heidegger says, Dasein is in every case beyond being as a whole. This being beyond beings is what we call transcendence. In a Japanese context, a Japanese thinker that I wasn't particularly impressed with, but will refer to this as a kind of transdescendence, and I think this may get at it. He says the possibility of negation as an act of intellect and therefore the intellect itself are somehow dependent upon the nothing. And I've done a, already done a podcast uh, comparing Heidegger and Kitato Nishida. And, of course, they're reading each other and begins to sound very Zen Buddhist and, of course, in Buddhism. At least in Nishida's depiction of it is sounding very Heideggerian, but it's all flowing out of a similar uh, vein of thought. He says, anxiety is when we can get no hold on things. In the slipping away of beings, this no hold on things comes over us and remains. Anxiety, then, reveals the nothing, that the incapacity to get a grasp. Think here of a kind of existential, Kierkegaardian kind of understanding of anxiety. Even the I slips away with the beings, but as I slips away with the beings, being emerges, big B emerges. In the altogether unsettling experience of this hovering, where there is nothing to hold on to, Pure Dasein is all that is still there. There is the encounter with nothingness, being held out into the nothingness. There is a loss of speech as all utterance of the is falls silent. We remember that for which we were anxious was properly nothing. Indeed, the nothing itself as such was there. So the question that he raises with what is metaphysics, he says, how is it with the nothing? And the goal then is to get a grip on the nothing, revealed there as it makes itself known. And anxiety, it's not itself getting a grip, but it is the experience of a slipping away of the whole that allows for an exposure of the nothing. It is annihilation, not annihilation or simply negation which would make nothing dependent upon beings the nothing itself annihilates it's a force in the world and as we 
see things slipping away, we get a, a picture of this force. It is an activity unto itself and completely apart from being. It discloses these beings in their full but heretofore concealed strangeness as what is radically other with respect to the nothing. It's in the clear night of the nothing of anxiety. The original openness of beings as such arises, that they are beings and not nothing. That is, it is the openness to the nothing that reveals the ground of being. Dasein means being held out into the nothing. The nothing reveals to us all that is and the way in which it is. It makes possible in advance the revelation of beings in general. It brings Dasein for the first time before beings as such. Thinking here again, to make some of this more practical, Lacan will pick some of this talk of nothing up talk about creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. And of course, Lacan is describing this not in terms of an actual creation event, but in terms of the human psychoanalytic creation of self, that the way that we would weave the self out of the tripartite self is in and through the encounter with nothing. And this is what he's going to call death drive, or what he takes from Freud and describes then as this force. Only on the ground of the original revelation of the nothing can human existence approach and penetrate beings. As Dasein is held out into the nothing, it attains transcendence or realizes transcendence over beings. This being beyond beings, he says, we call transcendence. And it is this transcendence which relates Dasein to itself and all beings, that here, then, is the insight. If in the ground of its essence Dasein were not transcending, which now means if it were not in advance holding itself out into the nothing, then it could never be related to beings nor even to itself. Without the original revelation of the nothing, there is no selfhood. There is no freedom. Again, this sounds a lot like Zizek. It sounds a lot like Lacanian understanding of Lacanian psychoanalytic theory that the self arises out of nothing, and in fact, nothing is the force here. Now, this isn't exactly the way that Heidegger is talking about this. Heidegger is talking about this as a huge philosophical insight. Zizek is talking about it as an a psychoanalytic understanding, or not an actually an understanding, but the, the way, in fact, this understanding has to be covered over, that you can't uh, turn to the nothing in a pure sense in this way, that you need the lie in Zizek, you need the delusion in order for the system to operate. Heidegger is saying you need to uncover the delusion. Maybe that would be a key difference. He says, negation does not conjure the not out of itself as a means for making distinction and oppositions in whatever is given, inserting itself, as it were, in between what is given. How could negation produce the not from itself when it can make denials only when something that's deniable is already granted? All thinking is grounded on a more basic not, made possible by the annihilation of the nothing in general. The idea here, negation, it's not simply through opposed pairs or through dualism. 
he's trying to get beyond dualism, and the way you get beyond dualism is through the nothing itself. In a sense, this is the next thinker that we'll take up is Jacques Derrida. And Derrida, of course, is going to pose the possibilities as identity through difference and oppositional difference, or identity in and through sameness. I think it's really Derrida's reading of Heidegger that is going to produce what Derrida will go back to Plato and notice the core, and it's out of the core, out of the chaos, out of the nothing that everything arises. But of course, Derrida is using this as a deconstruction of human thought, where Heidegger, again, is taking this as some sort of essence or reality. The not does not originate through negation. Rather, negation is grounded in the not that springs from the annihilation of the nothing. What he's saying is that it's not just there's opposition and you can negate something, but the negation is primary. The negation is original. It's the primary force. For negation cannot claim to be either the sole or the leading annihilative behavior in which Dasein remains shaken by the annihilation of the nothing. Unyielding antagonism and stinging rebuke have a more abysmal source than the measured negation of thought. There is an abyss, there is a nothingness at the heart of the origin of all things. Pure being and pure nothing are therefore the same. Being itself is essentially finite and reveals itself only in the transcendence of Dasein, which is held out into the nothing. From the nothing, all beings as beings come to be. Assuming that the question of being as such is the encompassing question of metaphysics, the question of the nothing proves to be such that it embraces the whole of metaphysics. So here's metaphysics set upon a new ground. Maybe we could end with a quote from Peter Trani, who has written his own book on Heidegger and is the head of the Heidegger Institute in Germany. And Trani's then description of his shock at reading Heidegger's notebooks. He says, the problem is not just that I'm morally shocked, it's also a problem that he is so dumb. Observe what he is writing there. You see that, like all the others, he was not better. You thought it, actually. For long years, you thought he was very clever. But he is not. This is something that requires a certain distance. He concludes, You shouldn't be too much in love with what you are reading, or you will always be disappointed. Martin Heidegger, a key thinker of Western thought, I think, who is giving rise to the thought that we're going to get in deconstruction in what we could call postmodernism. If you think of Heidegger as the last in a line, going back to the thinking of Anselm of Canterbury, we might say Anselm was the first rational mystic, Martin Heidegger is the last rational mystic, and here then we encounter the final failure of what I would say is Western thought. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton 
or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.